Zwolle. Iedere donderdag op Den Haag FM. Stork Talks met Tom en Sui. Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom. The Storks have been a part of life in The Hague for centuries. Have you spotted one yet? Each week, Stork Talks delves into a range of stories, news and anecdotes. And for the next hour, we'll take you under our wings as we discover the city of peace and justice. This is truly a special place to live and we invite you to tune in and discover it with us each Thursday between 8 and 9 p.m. on 92.0 Den Haag FM. I brought something special there, sorry. And I think these are some of the most well-known chords in uh, the Wild West, I may say. I I think I recognize it, Tom. (laughs) Um, I don't know about you, but I love a good Western. Um, And I think this one is from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which I know is one of the most famous. Have you seen it? I have, I have, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, a spaghetti Western, as they say, yeah. And the question, of course, that we're talking about today is um, yeah, there's a stalk related to this, I presume. So <laughs> whose stalk is related to the Spaghetti Western? Indeed, Tom, indeed. So the reason why we're playing you these iconic chords is that I spoke with a man who is passionate about film. And he hails originally from Israel, but he now lectures in film at the University of Amsterdam. His wife's work actually brought him to The Hague and he now lives right here in the city of peace and justice. And he told me that in spite of initial concerns about leaving the bright lights of the capital city, he is very happy here in The Hague and is eager to bring his love of film to the residents of our city. We're sitting here at the Nieuwe Regentes Theatre uh, and I've been here t- to a number of your film nights, um, Amir, and I've enjoyed all of them. Could you tell us a bit more about these film nights and uh, how you started them and what we could expect if we wanted to attend one? Sure. So um, it started about six years ago or seven uh, when I arrived to The Hague. Uh, I arrived because my wife works here uh, in the um, government and uh, very quickly I noticed uh, there's a lack of alternative cinema for those who like off-mainstream cinema. There's not a lot going on here, specifically for expats and internationals that live here. There's not a lot going on. It is not mainstream and moreover uh, translated into English. So usually you can watch some things in the film house, but usually translated to Dutch. Uh, since I live in the neighborhood of the new uh, Regentes, I dropped in. And from here to there, we started this film program, which by now runs already six, almost seven years. If you like to uh, watch our uh, films, you are welcome to join us. Uh, we have now screenings every Thursday at uh, quarter past eight. Maybe I can say something about the program we have. Absolutely. What is the what is the sort of the theme or the topic for, for this particular program? In October, we are going to have a tribute to the composer uh, Ennio Morricone. Ennio uh, Morricone is a great Italian composer, him. of course, uh, who just died uh, quite recently in July, mm. uh, passed away. And uh, therefore, uh, we thought it's a good opportunity to show some of the films he composed music for and he has so many amazing films 
He actually composed hundreds of scores. And we're going to show five very special uh, films that uh, he composed the soundtrack for. Okay, now, now I associate him with the spaghetti westerns. Yes. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Yes. Is that coming up? Or? Well, since we already showed The Good, the Bad oh, and the okay. Ugly uh, a year ago, uh, we skipped that one, although that's one, probably the most famous yeah. tune also. Uh, but we showed two other spaghetti westerns by mm. the same uh, uh, director. And we also show, we try to show a variety of uh, genres. Uh, so there was be one horror film, more drama, uh, Cinema Paradiso, which is more kind of like a feel-good historical film. So uh, quite a range of films by that he composed uh, music for. And then November, there is something in the new Rechentes. There's a lot of different activities. Uh, the new Rechentes is actually a cultural venue. So there's a lot going on here. Dance, music, flamenco, a lot is going on here. And in November, they are hosting, the venue is are hosting a festival that is called uh, Sacred Songs. And it's all kind of spiritual or related to spirituality, whether music, lectures, and also cinema. So I'm going to show uh, quite a few interesting titles that are kind of... A bit more edgy. I don't know if edgy, but you could say spiritual cinema. And we start okay. with, uh, maybe it's nice to just mention the first film, Indeed. because that's uh, Alejandro Khodorovsky, mm-hmm. uh, the great uh, Chilean director, now made another film at a very late age. He's almost 80 now, if not 80 already. And made another film about his technique of uh, psychomagic. Very interesting film, very beautiful, very uh, insightful, and even spiritual, I would say. So. Uh, okay, so you really are, you know, you, you, you're covering a lot of bases, and there should hopefully be something for everyone. Well, that's the idea, uh, to, to cover a lot and to show the broad range of cinema. Um, I mean, just before we finish, I know you also mentioned to me, but this is further in the future, next year, March time, um, you mentioned uh, there will be a focus on silent film. Yes, uh, every year we have a festival that is called uh, Sounds of Silence. It's a quite a large-scale festival, uh, one of the large festivals in The Hague uh, dedicated to silent cinema and live music. And the musicians are really cutting-edge musicians from the Netherlands and abroad and performing very unique scores uh, specifically composed for the films we are showing. So, very interesting event coming in, did in March. Okay, well that's definitely on my calendar. Amir, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You know, one of my favorite things is, Zoe, about silent movies. Mm. And the way he describes it as well is that he says there's unique music and talent and people to support it. And I think that's something absolutely fantastic. It's not something you often think about, is it really? No, it's it's basically the complete opposite. Because if you think silent movie, you think, okay, there would be silence. But it's exactly the, the amazing musicians that make that movie come alive. Indeed, yeah. indeed. I'm, I'm a big fan, I have to say. So, I mean, we we spoke a little bit about Spaghetti Westerns. Do you have a favorite Spaghetti Western? I think mainly I love their titles, Tom. So there's the famous Once Upon a Time in the West, which is actually really tragic and quite gritty in in parts, but still quite special. And then uh, Hang 'em High is another, again, these names, I mean, who can forget them? I think that's very well put, (laughs) yeah. Stork Talks. So only in The Hague can you expect an invitation from one of the many embassies uh, in this city uh, to one of the other cultural events. And I think that is exactly what happened with you, Zoe. Can you tell us more about it? 
Indeed, Tom. I had the pleasure recently of receiving an invitation from the Embassy of Poland and they, together with the embassies of Hungary, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, have organised the V4 Film Festival um, and it's called specifically Relationships Under Communism and After and that will take place online and includes four screenings of four films, one from each of the above-mentioned countries and that's happening uh, this weekend. So if you'd like to see any of these, uh, just go to the website for the Polish Embassy and there is a section there called V4 Film Festival but we will share that with you on our social media pages. Yeah, but before we move on, is where did the inspiration for these uh, these movies come from? Is that... Well, I don't know. It's a good question, Tom. I mean, I know, to be fair, I know the Polish embassy is quite active. They often organize events. I can vouch for that because I've been to a number. But I think also they're perhaps aware of their shared history behind the Iron Curtain with other countries like the Czech Republic and um, Hungary. So perhaps that's another was another inspiration. And they do actually have quite a rich film history. Do you think it's a good idea? I don't know in, in what essence that story is reflected, but to sort of find a way to bring that story to life without immediately bombarding you with all the information, finding a way to well, introduce you to the topic, but finding a middle ground there? Exactly. Well, I mean, I think this is where film is so amazing because it gives you that really a, a genuine understanding of what it what it must have been like just for the for the average person. I think one thing that I'd like to close up with, because what I love about the, the, the stroke of the week and the segment you, we just did is it's really focused on films. And I think with us uh, likely speaking, spending some more time at home in the coming period, I think it's a, a fantastic suggestion because these are all online as well, these festivals, right? Absolutely. So it's corona-friendly, it's weather-friendly. You can't really ask for more, Tom. Fantastic. Okay, we'll be right back. Each month, we focus on a theme of current interest. This month, our focus is peace and protest, inspired, of course, by the 30 Days of Peace, which began here in the International City of Peace and Justice on the 21st of last month, uh, and that is the International Day of Peace. Peace is something that we all value, in some sense, take it for granted as well. Yet thinking about it, as we begin to do some research into the subject, I found that it is a very difficult term to pin down. Peace can come across and mean many different things to many different people. Mm, I agree, Tom. Uh, I think we had that discussion and found it was a bit more complex than we imagined. Uh, but I think living here in The Hague, we're fortunate enough to enjoy very largely very peaceful lives. And we're also constantly reminded of the ideal of peace by the reassuring presence of the Peace Palace and, of course, the numerous international and humanitarian organizations devoted to its furtherance. Last uh, month, we had the topic of time and we've discovered all of the aspects from time. I would say there's more, but I mean, for now, that's where we're really it at. Um, and so we decided to start our month-long exploration of peace and protest and uh, by talking to Troni Ngati of The Hague Peace Project. Uh, Troni hails originally from Kenya where she worked as a journalist and she's now involved in furthering peace from right here in The Hague. Hello. Hello, Troni. Welcome, Troni. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's great to have a, a fellow African here on, on the show with us. Now, Troni, Perhaps we can just start by asking you how long you've been in The Hague and also part of The Hague Peace Projects and also what peace means to you. Yeah, so I've been here in The Hague for four years now. Mm -hmm. I'll be making five next year. Okay. And peace for me means the absence of war because that's what everybody knows of. But 
it stands a little deeper for me. For me, it's also having uh, all your provisions on a daily to a day-to-day basis met in that you can thrive. There's nobody holding a gun to your head. You can be all you can be. You have uh, water, you have food, you have clothing. You can express yourself and nobody can pin you down for what you say. So peace is, is, is very different uh, depending on who's sitting on the end of a coin. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're very right. And it seems to me that you're thinking there about both inner peace, but also the outward, uh, the outward aspects. So perhaps that just brings us on a little bit to your part in the Hague Peace Projects. Is this an organisation that you've been part of for a while, and, and what is it? What is your role there? So uh, I've been for the Hague Peace Projects for three years. I'm the co-creation and operations manager. That means we are always sitting in with teams and our partners or stakeholders to make sure that these processes of peace and dialogue do go through. We have um, the, I wouldn't say Turkey as a whole, but I'd say the Turkish and the Kurdish um, dialogue, so to say. So those are Turks and Kurds who live in the Netherlands and have um, a thing or two that um, they would like to carry on with maybe a dialogue or conversation of things that do not sit too well with them. So, so you've right. been with the Hague Peace Project uh, for, for a little while, but I think that brings us on to our next question, doesn't it? Yeah, Tom? I think um, you mentioned it before, Zoe, because there's such a lively discussion on what is peace, and there's many organizations in the Hague that do a form of peace or they're trying to create or that have chosen specific areas and I think one of the questions that popped in our minds as well is um, what is it that that your NGO does uh, specifically in the the City of Peace and Justice that is different than maybe some other NGOs? That's a a difficult question but I would say in a nutshell uh, is that we have people um, on the ground or contact people that we we, um, work on um, a daily basis or and get real information from. So it's local uh, representatives, is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, I'd say so. But the fact that we're not like sitting at uh, a hotel room discussing about people who we haven't seen, mm. the people who are actually making change on ground mm. and being um, the agent of change or the catalyst of change, so we like to call it an organization, are actually there. They're there at the table um, making the decisions. And I wouldn't like to say in other organizations, but in majority of um, the organizations, you always have people discussing about peace, say, in the Great Lakes region, yet they're not from the Great Lakes region or are not there at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I really like what you're saying here. One of my favorite quotes that I heard this week from, from someone else on this topic is we were speaking about if you want to create peace, you shouldn't be sitting at the table with friends. You should be sitting at the table with, well, enemies or people that... Uh, uh, don't agree with your views and i was very curious like uh, i presume that if you're speaking about okay we're working with local representatives we want to make sure we have this conversation to make meaningful changes how do you start a conversation with uh, inevitably someone that you would like to to see changed well i think from the very onset is can they agree to meet if you can just like get a hold of them to agree to meet that is an indication that they are willing to hear you. If they're able to hear you, then now you can 
say, well, this is how I see, say, the genocide in Rwanda. How do you see it? And you're able to pick out all the things that um, wouldn't fit in for them. Another thing I must really say is that when you are focusing on, say, peace and dialogue, the change does not happen immediately. It takes sometimes years for there to be uh, a great uh, change or impact. This is not to say that you just sit with people from two different (laughs) front lines and expect something to happen. No. No, no. No, of course. Now, I know, um, Trony, you've mentioned before that, as you mentioned, you work with with the diaspora from some of the more troubled regions in the world, which I agree with Tom, it sounds, sounds sensible. So that sort of brings me on to the next question of how does, how do you choose your projects? You were beginning to tell us a little bit about your projects in Turkey. Obviously, there's lots of conflict regions around the world. So how do you choose? Um, how we get to choose the, the, the projects is first our team definitely proposes them. Mm. And then we meet along and meet the, the, the work group which is represented by a community. And that's also something that's very interesting with um, our organization. We do have a lead, but you'll end up having a, a work group, say, for example, if it's Bangladesh or Somalia or Sudan, they have a community leader, you know, more like, you know, your village chief, so yeah. so, hmm. but now based here in The Hague, who hmm. now be um, the voice to the rest of the community and say, okay, the Hague Peace Project would like to do something um, to kind of fix maybe how women are seen in in Bangladesh. And they will definitely now pass on that information and then kind of collectively get that communal takeover of what should be the thing that we do. Alternatively, we also have partners who just jump on board and say, okay, so this is what we would like to do in region A, B, C, D. Could we create something together? Could we collaborate? Okay, and so, then that's how it begins. So, so it sounds to me like it's not just a question of a country, of getting a bunch of people together no. for a country. It's mm-hmm. actually you choose a specific issue on which to focus. Yes. And sometimes the issue is brought to us as a suggestion, and then we've got to wait on ourselves. Do we have the collective manpower to deal with that issue? And sometimes um, the issues are so high level that it would be better if the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or somebody wow. else would have to deal with it, you know? So, so do you so, work with them as well? I mean, if the issues yeah. are that big, is, is, is that something that you're, you're capable of arranging? We could be a point of contact or probably offer advice, but their work is their work <laughs> and our work is, uh, is Walk is in, our slam work. your fist on the table, so... <laughs> Something has to change. But there have been lots of proposals on the table. Um, I guess sometimes uh, we're too high and mighty and um, our agendas don't match at certain points and interests too. We've got to remember that countries have interests. So um, we always need to refer back to that before. Of getting involved in the project. I think what uh, Joni, uh, we're going to continue right after a little musical intermezzo is we've chosen a, a special song for you and, and for this topic. And I'm curious two, if, if you'll one, recognize two, three, it. Four. Does that ring a bell, Journey? Play it a little bit more. A little bit more? Okay, no, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what it is. This is uh, Give Peace a Chance by uh, John Lennon and uh, Yoko Ozo. Oh, yes. I, had, I definitely didn't know he was in the mix. 
I think that was a lovely little transition into uh, the next part of the discussion. Um, one of the questions, Journey, that we wanted to ask you before the break, we already briefly spoke about uh, some of the initiatives, some of, of what do you do as an organization? How do you make sure what are key ingredients to a successful project? Uh, one of the key questions that we would like to ask you is what is your most successful project thus far and, and why is that one of the most successful projects? Um, again, that's a very difficult question because whenever you have a project, they're like your babies. <laughs> so you you kind of like love all of them equally and give them undivided attention. I, I will be very picky with this. I think um, one of our successful projects has been um, the Haycacks. That is um, a peace and tech mix. It's actually uh, a program, so you could call it maybe a lengthier project, so to say. Another that has been successful has been the Freedom Book Fair, and this brings um, artists, uh, academia, front, and local people together to um, discuss the concept of freedom. There, sorry, Journey, to, to interrupt yeah. you there, but were there projects, like uh, most successful, of course, is difficult to determine, but were there projects that you perhaps uh, didn't originally think were going to succeed and in the end still did? I think we, we always kind of like have a, an, an indication <laughs> before we set off. Of but, I mean, that is impressive because um, I, I think it's a very yes. difficult industry to have that sort of guarantee, right? Yeah, and um, there the will definitely be challenges, but those you know, you, you, you don't call them failures. You just say, well, it's it's just a curve that needs to be um, sharpened and benchmarked for the next. But I, I would say maybe the ones that I probably haven't would have had a better lease of life. Now, I, I might be um, <laughs> put on the, on the line for this, but it would be to do with um, more of um, Somalia, Syria. And I'll tell you why. With Somalia, um, you have got... It, it's very difficult to, to, to get to the, the groups of people, especially if it's uh, the communities here in the Netherlands, because the women uh, work separately from the men, and then they have a community leader. So again, you have to negotiate with the community leader before you can have all of them find something that they'd really want to um, work on. Then you're oh, yeah. saying that that you need to sort of get the working groups of men together, and then and women, the separate yes. ones of the women. So sort of d times yes. two. Yes, because mm. this this the the reason is what comes into play is also the uh, religion and how women are looked at vis a vis men, and yes. the dynamics in there. So right. you know when you when you're setting up a project, all this has to come into play. Great to work together, but if you have a lady working on a project till eight o'clock. She's a mom. She has got children. She's got a family and she comes from a Muslim household. It's got to be very different, mm. you know? So all these things um, sometimes are put into play as to is the project successful or not. Yeah, very challenging. So what we always have to, to think about is who are we working with and how can we make the conditions for them better? So it also is landing ground for us in uh, the NGO world and um, other organizations put together. Do we also put other people's needs first above, you know, getting the work done at the end mm -hmm. of the day? 
It's difficult. Troni, now I'm sure there's, there's a lot of things we'd like to hear a bit more about, um, but perhaps we can, we can just move towards an end by looking ahead a little bit. And as you said, some of your projects are often time dependent. They, these things don't happen quickly. As you say, conditions are very complex. Also, um, people work slowly. And if there's lots of complications, that also slows it down. So these are not the sorts of projects perhaps that you would imagine happening at, say, Google or Facebook or something like that like that. No, no. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> so for this reason, uh, we wanted to ask you how you see the future of organizations such as, as yours, which obviously are working in a slightly different way. They're often dependent also, of course, on donations and funding. And particularly now uh, with COVID, we all know that things have got more difficult for everyone. I mean, how, how do you see the future of uh, the Hague Peace Projects? Well, um, I would say that that is indeed um, a question we have to always sit on every every Monday morning since that is our start of the the week kind of meetings and it does bring it to book that it's 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 bleak it's really truly unknown <laughs> until um, this whole COVID vaccine comes about which so it's 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 pretty bleak because the Hague Peace Projects relies a whole lot on um, community and dialogue. And we, we can definitely just, you know, have it online. But sometimes we're also dealing with, with persons who have got sensitivities or things they would not just like to, to speak online to a group of people. Of and the, that one-to-one is very important. It's very difficult for us to um, proceed the, in the normal way we used to do. So we used to do up to close to 100 events every wow. year. This year, we did our planning up to around March and have done that this month. So that's terrible. So what can we do to help? Um, what you can do to help is give us ideas. Give us ideas of the way forward. Majority of the things that we do are for the community of The Hague. So we would love to hear from you. Give us ideas. No, fantastic. Shoot an email at us with that's ideas of how they could help going forward. That sounds excellent, Troni. Thank you. I look forward to all the other discussions that we might have. But uh, for now, just thank you so much for joining us, Troni. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Zoe. Stork Talks. Um, now, of course, onto one of my favorite segments, mm-hmm. and the food and beverage segment. The previous month, we've been talking about uh, vegetables and uh, the vegetarian cuisine. We had the vegan cuisine. And uh, to close off this month, I have a bit of an anomaly, of course, because it's not a straight up uh, meatless cuisine. Mm-hmm. It's a restaurant, in my opinion, which should be included in the discussion when we talk about uh, conscious consumption, vegetables, or at least any form of, uh, well, Conscious consuming. Let's okay. let's leave it at that. Uh, the restaurant that I'm talking about is the restaurant Ethica. Uh, although they aren't, like I said, exclusively vegetarian or vegan, they showcase the relevance of conscious consuming. And to talk more about the philosophy, I had the opportunity to talk to one of the owners, which was uh, Robin, who shared not only the philosophy of Ethica, but also the meaning of the restaurant itself. Ethica is that it was named after the book of Spinoza called Ethica. And his thoughts about how to live a proper life in this world is uh, still a actual subject. And we try to reproduce that in our restaurant. So, so what are elements that make a proper life, according to Spinoza then? 
It is all about your interaction with your surrounding and how to live a sustainable life and have sustainable relationships without a very large footprint on your surroundings. Okay, so no, that, that's very interesting and it fits as well with a lot of the, the themes that are being discussed today in sustainability and locally and self-produced. You also mentioned that these elements are specifically important to Ethica. Could you give me maybe a few examples of uh, sustainability? Yes, of course. Uh, for example, 80% of what we serve is based on vegetables uh, instead of coming from uh, animals. And the animals that we use are always in overpopulation in Holland. Uh, so they are shot because they are with too many. And therefore, uh, we try to cook with them. And of course, we work with the whole no-satil concept. So we try to use everything. But the uh, animal protein on a plate is never uh, the main character. It's always about the vegetable in the first place. So 80% of what we serve on our menu and on the plate is vegetables. And we try to make vegetables awesome and make sure that people get different ideas about eating vegetables instead of always having meat as the uh, main character on your menu. That's a, a fascinating philosophy, but why do you think that it's so important today in, t in today's world? Well, everybody knows that we suffer from global warming and uh, what the effects are from global warming. And what we try to do is uh, we don't try to tell people what to do. We try to show them uh, how you can be different with your food, coming from a positive thought uh, and not from a negative one saying, you can't do this, no. We try to say, it's nice to do that. It uh, will uh, enrich your life uh, and uh, it's also healthy. So that education is very important. So you said you do that education with the, the food and, and the storytelling at the table. Um, what other elements or what other ways have you found to, to be able to tell that story? Uh, well, the restaurant is not only a showcase of the food you can produce, but also a showcase of what food is. So we grow our tomatoes in the, the, the windows. Uh, we have different kinds of peppers. Uh, we have lemons in our uh, restaurant. So what we find interesting is that a lot of people don't know how a tomato grows. And we show it here. Uh, and it's really easy. So what we try to do is have people grow their own tomatoes in their own windows. When someone else sees that at their house, it will start a conversation and then you get the ripple effects of which we would really like to set off. So instead of a, a plant as a housewarming gift, next time you just show up with a, a tomato and you say, here you go, this is the gift for food and for future meals in this new house. That, that would be awesome, yeah. Or, or lemons or whatever you can find, of course. Uh, but um, yeah, it's nice to see how something grows and then ripens and then you can actually make something with it that you can eat and share with other people. I think that's the whole concept of food. Um, and would you say that you also appreciate it more that way? Well, we grow our own uh, vegetables together with a friend of us. And during summer, last summer, we were almost completely self-sufficient from that. But because you put a lot of effort in it, you want to use everything of the plant. For example, the leaves from the, the cauliflower, they are perfectly edible. But nobody knows it because at the supermarket, you don't even get the leaves with your cauliflower. 
Uh, we actually make a very nice uh, sauerkraut from it or uh, kimchi, uh, which which is just a very nice add-on on your plates. And again, it's a nice conversational topic as well. So I think what's nice is uh, what you mentioned from Ethica. It has that sustainability, that locally, that self-produced, and especially that education as well to give people an opportunity to see all the things that you can do with food. Are there tips or advice that you would give? You could say, okay, that's one way to bring a little Ethica into your own household. Well, what we do on a daily basis is ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why do we do certain things that are like a automated process that we follow we learn that from our parents or we learn that from our surrounding but you can always ask yourself why do i do that and how can i be better and not only in how you go along with food but also in relationships or how you clean your house or um there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to be more sustainable uh, apart from only uh, how you eat uh, for example, we make our own washing detergent for our washing machine, which is really easy. Uh, you just buy a block of soap, you grate it, cook it, and you have washing detergent. And you can make, with one block, you can make like 200 liters of washing detergent. And it's also sustainable. It, you can give it the smell you want, and it's good for your wallet. So if people want to know more about the philosophy behind Ethica or where to find more about the restaurant, where can they find that information? Of course, we have a website, uh, ethicarestaurant.nl or .com. Uh, we have a Facebook, an Instagram, and you can always send us an email at uh, info at ethicarestaurant.nl. So what do you think? Sorry. It is uh, fascinating, Tom. And uh, yeah, I think, as you said before, this is a question of ethics no pun intended and oh, I, I didn't realize it at first so that was a good one yeah well done <laughs> no but but seriously uh the points that he makes in his interview and i know we were talking about this earlier this notion that to eat ethically or as you say consume ethically you don't necessarily have to be vegetarian and i do think that's a, a very interesting way of, of looking at it yeah that's why i like that it sort of brings this whole month together of all mm. the different restaurants that we had uh, we had the, the vegan restaurant we have of course had Horta's restaurant also vegetarian indeed um, and, and then we had the vegetarian talk also vegetarian and i think this restaurant one of the things for me that stood out in the interview is not that he said we avoid meat or whatever on the plate because that's not really what it's about but he says no. well we make sure that the vegetables are centric of the meal rather than say the meat because i think meat is very traditionally that's the highlight it's been of the, the meal. centerpiece yeah. hasn't yeah. it so from from many of the mm. stories or restaurant stories that i've told you before what are some of your favorite ones from the the previous month before mm. we move into the next one i mean one? i'm thinking there's quite a range and for me i was interested to hear about the the vegetarian um restaurant and boutique hotel mm -hmm. which i yeah i didn't even know such things existed so that was interesting to me and also but i do know the place where it is in the Hague in a lovely little square so so I'm quite intrigued by that but I also found this uh, this Ethica interview very interesting because to be honest I'm not a vegetarian so I do think it's quite nice to hear about you know how one can be eth eat ethically without necessarily shunning all meat and or fish eggs 
dairy products, uh, which for me would would be quite a challenge. I mean, have you have you done tried something like that before at all? No, Tom, I'm from South Africa. <laughs> you, you can't. You know, I don't know if that's an excuse. You can excuses. take the girl out of South Africa, but you can't take South Africa out of the girl. One thing for me that I will always uh, remember was from uh, a speaker that we invited to our school, and for me, that's something that I, I felt was such a powerful message. Is we very often we measure, and I think we spoke about this last week as well. Is we very often measure someone whether they're vegetarian or not. Like there's no in between. And I think this is a, a nice transition into that as well in the discussion mm -hmm. to say, well, you can be vegetarian, but you can also be a flexitarian or say, I'm just going to eat less meat. That also has an impact rather than uh, saying, okay, I have to abolish it, meat altogether. Absolutely. One can simply try to eat more ethically. Lovely. I, I love that. I think that's where we're going to leave it. I don't think I can top that. That's <laughs> I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe. And thank you for stalking with us this evening. Next week on Stalk Talks, Tom is going to dive deeper into the fishy world of fine dining. Tell us more, Tom. Yeah, the exciting world of fish in the Hague. There's um, many stories to tell, and I think especially herring is a fascinating subject that we're going to dive in deeper. Yeah, excuse the second pun. I mean, you already made it, but it's, I, I just love it so much to, to dive deeper into the topic. I think that's very suitable. Uh, next to that, of course, we have protest. We're going to continue with protest. The peaceful kind, of course. Sorry. Indeed. Uh, so we, we're looking forward to welcoming representatives from Extinction Rebellion and the Free West Papai uh, campaign. And both of these are uh, protest movements. And we'll, we'll hear a little bit more about that next week. So um, people, if they want to know more about some of the episodes and the, the things that you have heard in this program, where can they hey, find all of that projects. information, Zoe? So always, always do check our Facebook page. We keep that updated regularly on a daily basis. And also, or if you're an Instagram person, look out for us on Instagram. You'll find us very easily, Stalk Talks. Yeah, and if you're an email person, you can also do that. Uh, it's uh, uh, Stalk Talks. Uh, dhfm at gmail.com absolutely please tune in again next week on 92.0 for more fun frolics and some interesting pieces of news uh, right here in the city of peace and justice <laughs>